Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 55, April 4th to April 10th, 1862. Last week, we saw the final battle in the invasion of New Mexico by Confederate forces. While the overall withdrawal may not be happening just yet, just remember that it is right around the corner where Sibley's men will begin the long, hard crawl back to Texas. This retreat back is going to go through some pretty desert-like territory, and it's going to be particularly hard on the Texas troops as they withdraw. This week, we're going to focus on just one battle of the war. Up until this point, it's actually going to be the largest battle of the war as well. Men write in their memoirs about how savage this battle was, even compared with other battles that we have not yet gotten into down the line. No, many will go back into their memoirs and write that it was, in fact, this battle that stands above all the rest in terms of its ferocity and intensity. This episode, we will be going over the Battle of Shiloh. Let's set up what is going on in the West. As we have seen, winter is not going well for the Confederacy in the Western region. Donelson and Henry have fallen, as well as Nashville, which removed the iron facilities and arsenal, as well as manufacturing capability there. Mill Springs had made Kentucky untenable, and the entire defensive line had to be moved further south. Island number 10 has not fallen yet, but the situation is looking pretty bleak, with Pope tightening the noose around this next fortification on the Mississippi. Despite the string of bad luck, Confederate papers were still upbeat. There were undertones that this was the divine testing the resolves of the rebels. On the flip side, things were starting to really turn around for the Union compared to the battlefield defeats they endured in 1861. Already capturing several key areas, notably Middle Tennessee, the next target for the Union Army, could potentially be the strategic city of Corinth. The northern Mississippi City was a railroad junction for two key rail lines and was also important to the security of Memphis. The Memphis and Charleston Railroad was seen as a key supply and communication line connecting east and west. Many believed that if Corinth fell, so too would Memphis. So Union morale was high. Success on the battlefield and given good supplies were important to the soldiers. The overall Union sentiment was that the Confederates were close to breaking and that the war in the west would soon come to a close. It was said that there were many deserters and that prisoners already taken in the campaigns echoing this feeling that resistance was no longer worth it. 
Ulysses Grant, would write to Julia, his wife, that he was wanting to whip the Confederates one more time. This highlights his wanting some more battlefield success before that was no longer an option. So it's plain that even to Grant, his opportunities are slipping with the lack of Confederate morale. Grant's Army of the Tennessee and Buell's Army of the Ohio would converge and make a formidable opponent. Henry Halleck was on his way to command these armies and hopefully strike a death blow to the Confederacy. Confederate motivations were simple. Regaining their lost territory and securing what they still held onto would spur the rebels to make a move. PGT Beauregard would start the process of gathering forces at Corinth for a strike at the Union Army. The Confederate Army was a ragtag and mixed composition army. Beauregard, remember, had come from the East to be useful in the West. Braxton Bragg marched north with men from Pensacola. The defending units from New Orleans would join the newly dubbed Army of Mississippi. Many of the men were green, having seen no combat yet. Along with this rookie attitude, they were also ill-disciplined. Braxton Bragg, who will go on to command a corps at Shiloh, was agitated at the pillaging of the men. It would be here that Bragg would start to develop his reputation as a disciplinarian, as he had several men executed for more egregious crimes. Supply was an issue, but there has often been a misconception that the army was poorly armed. In reality, they were armed with mostly modern rifled muskets, including infields that had recently arrived via blockade runners. Now, you may have noticed that I said Beauregard was responsible for putting together the Army of Mississippi. Albert Sidney Johnston had decided he needed to take direct control of the Army, but would rely on the administrative capability of the Louisiana General. If you recall from our introduction of Johnston, he was considered the brightest star the Confederacy had but this may not have been fair pressure to heap on the Kentuckian-turned-Texan. He had been sort of a failure for vast majorities of his life, having declared bankruptcy and relied on the Texas War of Independence and the Mexican-American War. His return to the U.S. Army had led to another unsuccessful expedition into the Mormon territory, which I hope to cover in a later episode. Like we said, things were not going well, and there was unrest in the Confederate press. When it came to Johnson, there were accusations of incompetence and also drunkenness. There were those in the army who were calling for his replacement as well. To be fair, the territory that Johnson was expected to control was extremely large. If you look at it, he is alone facing three separate departments from the Union. Sort of a valid criticism of Johnson, though, was that he 
put too much faith into his subordinate officers. Prior to the Battle of Shiloh, he would actually try to turn the army over to Beauregard for field command. This offer was politely refused by Beauregard, but weirdly, he was kept on as a second-in-command. This vague command structure would come into play during the battle. Johnson was confident and satisfied with his second, though, who had created an impressive force of some 40,000 men. Commanding under Johnson were Corps Commanders Bragg, Polk, Hardy, and Breckinridge. Hardy was a native of Georgia who had attended West Point and served in the Mexican-American War. He had actually written a textbook for the academy called Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics. Hardy will be with us in the West for the rest of the war. Breckinridge, the former vice president, had actually taken over for Crittenden, who we mentioned previously at Mill Springs, relieved due to his drunkenness. Serving under Hardy was Patrick Claiborne. Now is as good a time as any to introduce Claiborne, who was an Irish immigrant who had served in the British Army prior to immigrating to America. Claiborne would eventually find himself in Arkansas after studying law in Cincinnati. He is considered by some to be the true Stonewall of the West, so he will be with our story for at least a good while. If the Confederates were showing a sense of desperation, it was not shown by the Union forces. They were well supplied and eager to finish the job, that is for sure, but there was just an overall sense of lax that had spread throughout the army. If there was anyone, though, who perhaps was uneasy, it was Grant. Despite having won two key victories in the capture of the forts, on the Cumberland and Tennessee, his superior Halleck is still going to be out for him. C.F. Smith was actually slated to replace Grant, but he would injure himself getting out of a rowboat, an injury that once infected would prove fatal. His division, therefore, would be taken over by William H.L. Wallace, no relation to Lou. Old Brains Henry Halleck was going to personally take command of the Army of Tennessee. Therefore, his orders were not to bring on an open engagement, something that will play a larger role as the battle begins. Now, why exactly did Halleck not want to bring on an open engagement? That's pretty simple. There are political implications for Halleck. He wants to win a great victory. He has a rivalry with John Carlos Buell who's coming down with his army of the Ohio. So if Buell happens to show up and, say, gain some kind of victory, or even if Grant has another victory, it's not going to see his star rise. So Halleck says, sit tight, let me get there, and then we'll take care of the Confederates. We should take a moment to learn about why exactly it was a good time to hit Grant and the Union forces. Most of the army was concentrated around a place called Pittsburgh Landing. 
Sherman had actually made his headquarters near a Methodist church named Shiloh. It has often been asserted that Sherman picked the site of Pittsburgh Landing, but this is actually false. Grant approved the location because it was sheltered by two creeks as well as the river. It would also allow the army to easily move toward Corinth once it was ready. Probes had been going in that direction, which had been slowed down by the muddy road conditions. Sherman and Prentiss had two divisions of mostly raw troops, which they would drill for the upcoming campaign. Benjamin Prentiss, we have met before, having raised a regiment and brought it to Cairo, Illinois. Wallace, Hurlbert, and McClernand would be further north of Sherman and Prentiss, while Lou Wallace is at Crump, further north on the river. Stephen Hurlbert actually lived a majority of his life in Charleston, South Carolina, before relocating to Illinois and receiving a commission from Lincoln due to his Republican leanings. William Wallace was born in Ohio and served as a volunteer during the war with Mexico. He has also been in our story before, serving as a brigade commander under McClernand at Fort Donelson. We introduced Lou a while back during one of our episodes, but the Ben-Hur author is the only division not at Pittsburgh Landing, having conducted the reconnaissance toward Corinth. Little was accomplished other than some minor destruction to rail tracks. But this move, combined with the slow-moving Army of the Ohio, was enough to make it clear time was running out for the Southerners. Grant would make his headquarters at Savannah with the steamboat Tigress ready to move out down the river, although she was actually not prepared the morning of the 6th and had to build up steam. One of the main topics of debate surrounding the Union camp was why it was not fortified. James McPherson did not think them necessary. Sherman and the other generals wanted to be ready to move out. They would surely be doing the attacking, so why would they need to be on the defensive? Johnson and Beauregard would decide to take the battle to the enemy rather than wait for Buell and Grant to combine. The four corps that really had only been put together on the 3rd were going to be ready to march by the 4th of April. Despite the confidence and success by the commanding officer, the movement to the Union camp was laughably executed. It was done in a confusing fashion and poor coordination having not started on time. One of Bragg's divisions goes missing at one point, stuck behind the rest of Polk's men. Now the Union forces should have known that something was up. Sherman believed that there was simply a reconnaissance in force and would indicate as much to Grant when pressed about skirmishing. Artillery had been deployed, and used against Union cavalry. Still, the prevailing logic was that the rebels were at Corinth, 
and there they would sit, ready to take a walloping by the Yankees. If anyone in the Union Army was vulnerable, it was considered to be Lew Wallace, who was isolated away from the rest of the army. Now, it was on the Confederate march that the infamous Confederate Council of War occurs. Reportedly, it was not a formal council, but ended up including all the corps commanders except for Hardy. Beauregard, who it should be pointed out was also the one who designed the troop movements on the way to Shiloh, wanted to call off the attack entirely. Surely, the Union Army was well aware of their march and prepared with fixed positions to receive them. Johnson's trust in Beauregard to set up the march to Shiloh as well as develop the main battle plan is just an example of him putting a lot of trust in his subordinate officer. Beauregard does sort of have a point, though. He had spent a lot of time trying to bolster up the defenses around Corinth, so... It is a good defensive position, although we'll talk about it later in the series. It's not necessarily the place you want to be, uh, mostly because of the lack of potable drinking water, but we'll get there eventually. It would actually come down to Beauregard and Bragg against the other officers, but Johnson included in those who were for pressing on the attack. They had come too far to simply march away. It could cost them in negative press and desertions, so it was a little too late for turning around. Bragg was swayed, and so PGT stood alone. We can understand the pressure that is heaped on Johnson. He can't have any more negative things happening without some sort of result in the West. And all these things are piled up. He's being accused of incompetency, so he needs something to happen. The Confederacy in the West needs something to happen. Losing the night of the 5th, they would have to settle on a morning assault on the 6th. Confederate camps were so close to the enemy that reportedly an officer heard someone barking orders and wanting to enforce strict silence in the camp rushed out to see who was giving the orders, and it was actually someone in the Union camp. That's how close they were. A problem that was continuing to plague the Army of Mississippi was the lack of direction in their attack. It is unclear whether the goal was to push the Union forces to the river or turn their flank. Attacking from the south would require the rebels to swing around in order to accomplish the former. Moving the northerners back to Pittsburgh Landing would be easy, and actually, what ends up happening? Beauregard and Johnson were not on the same page. Second in command of the army, Beauregard would head back and cover the logistics of the army. Johnson, more to his style, would lead from the front. Famously, he would remark that they would water their horses in the Tennessee River. But the problem was that Beauregard would have an attack by the Corps in Echelon, a confusing maneuver for the new troops. 
Now, we've briefly discussed what an attack in echelon really means, and that essentially it's a diagonal attack. So one unit is going to step off first, and then the next units are coming sort of in intervals, right? Like uh, in this particular example, the troops under Hardy are going to lead the attack, and then Braggs are going to be coming up uh, a little ways behind him, but also to the left of him. So that's how Beauregard decides he's going to attack the Union camp on the morning of the 6th. Another misconception about the Battle of Shiloh is that Prentiss saved the Army of the Tennessee on the morning of the 6th. In reality, Colonel Everett Peabody was the one who would start the engagement for the Union Army. Peabody had graduated Harvard as an engineer prior to the war. Despite not being a professional soldier, he had already seen combat participating in the First Battle of Lexington. At Shiloh, he will be commanding a brigade under Prentiss. Peabody knew that something was happening with the rebels, so he would organize a reconnaissance force in the early hours of the morning. It's sort of unfortunate because Peabody has been banging this drum, so to speak, that something is up. Um, but unfortunately, there was a situation where some of his more green troops, his raw troops, would be reprimanded by Sherman only a few days before because they were afraid of an attack that was obviously not coming that day, but certainly was in the works for the rebel army. His men would make first contact with Confederate cavalry and then with the advancing units of Hardy's corps. The division commander would rebuke Peabody for having brought on the engagement. He would famously reply that he was responsible for all his actions and certainly would answer for them. Unfortunately for Peabody, he would not survive the day to tell his side of the story. Overwhelming numbers would see the brigade under Peabody push back and then Prentice's second brigade as well. The Confederates had arrived. When first told that there was a battle going on, Sherman did not believe the reports. Remember, these men were not experienced, so it was likely that they were being jumpy. Sherman would ride out with his staff and encounter Confederate infantry, learning the hard way that he was mistaken. A member of his staff is killed when the rebels open fire. Many of the men in the Union Army were not convinced it was a real attack. One soldier notes that while doing dishes, he stated that he hoped the rebels would wait until the dishes were done. A Michigan unit arrived and pondered that perhaps their comrades were shooting at squirrels. When seeing the wounded streaming by, they morbidly joked that perhaps the squirrels bite. Initially, his division would perform well in fending off the rebel advances. Sherman's men would actually hold them off for some three hours. It would be here that the 7th Mississippi would suffer 70% casualties at the hands of Sherman's men. 
but the blue-clad boys are still inexperienced. One of his regiment commanders, Jesse Appler, of the 53rd Ohio, would panic, causing his men to break and run. As McClernand comes up, Sherman will join him on the Union right and making a stand along the Hamburg-Purdy Road. Prentiss would have much of his division put to rout, falling back to a new defensive line. William Wallace and his division would plug the gap in right center, and Hurlbert would form roughly on the left flank of the Union line. Just so we get a good idea of what is going on, if you were to look west to east roughly, you would see Sherman, McClernand, Wallace, Prentiss, and Hurlbert. The attacking Confederates would be west to east roughly, Polk, Hardy, Bragg, Breckenridge. But, as we mentioned, the complicated maneuver of attack for the Confederates would make it so these units are all mixed up throughout the day. Now the place where Wallace and Prentice will form up will be known as the Sunken Road, although it was not quite as sunken as, say, the Sunken Road at Antietam. Dense thickets would provide cover, but still be a hot spot on the battlefield. Because of all the enemy fire, it would be known as the Hornet's Nest. Now the Hornet's Nest is probably one of the more iconic battlefield sites. It is probably the best known of the sites on the Shiloh battlefield. It was the first introduction I got to the Battle of Shiloh, being featured on the History Channel series Civil War Combat. And let me tell you, it is something I watched many times as a kid. But there is a weird aura that surrounds the Hornet's Nets, and it may not quite have been the saving position for the Union Army. For one point, there was never a Confederate numerical advantage at the Hornet's Nest. Braxton Bragg would eventually come to command the troops in this sector and throw units in piecemeal at the thickets. His attacks would get repulsed, and to a degree, it is sort of a time suck for the Confederates. Bragg wastes time not simply bypassing the area, Battlefield burials also show that it is not the costliest spot at Shiloh in terms of human loss of life. A veteran of an Iowa regiment who served in Wallace's division would be in charge of the battlefield preservation of Shiloh at one point. It would be this man who would start the narrative that the hornet's nest was the rock that Grant rested upon. Still, it was here that Grant's orders not to give up any more ground would be taken very literally by his division commanders. Hold at all hazards no doubt ringed in their ears. It would result in the capture of Prentice and the mortal wounding of Wallace. Just to backtrack though, I think it is interesting in some of the research that you do about the Battle of Shiloh that the Hornet's Nest turns out to not be quite the momentous area that it's advertised as. There's also a section of the battlefield where there was a bloody pond reportedly, but the spot on the battlefield that has the bloody pond isn't isn't the spot where it was or, or probably wasn't there, 
right? It's just an interesting battlefield because people started to come to these sites and they wanted to see important places. And so it was easy to just throw up a sign and say, this is the bloody pond or this is the hornet's nest or this is where Albert Sidney Johnson dies. Um, so it's interesting when you're looking and you're researching how the battlefield kind of takes shape as a national park, eventual national park uh, versus how it was in April of 1862. Grant had heard the sounds of battle as his staff was sitting down to breakfast. He would jump aboard the Tigris and steam off downriver. On the way, he would stop briefly to confer with Lou Wallace, who he instructed to await further orders. In one of those weird misconception moments in military history, Wallace already has his division ready to go probably something Grant did not realize. So his orders would not be received until Grant was at Pittsburgh Landing. Fortunately for Grant, the Confederate attack will stall as the rebels started looting the Union camps. Part of the reason why the Confederates stopped to raid the federal camps was that they were hungry. Poor rationing led the men to search through the enemy belongings some of whom were cooking breakfast when the attack came. Famously, Johnson would scold a young officer and grab a tin cup, saying it would be his spoils for the day. Displaying part of the savagery of the battle, there were sick and wounded men who would die due to tents catching fire in the camps. There is also a moment in this part of the battle where New Orleans soldiers would be fired upon for wearing blue uniforms by their comrades in a chaotic scene. So even though this is going to be the largest battle of the war thus far, and one of the most important battles of the war as we go forward, it's still relatively new in the conflict, so we're still having these friendly fire incidents and lack of discipline, lack of cohesion among troops. The Confederates would focus on the flanks of the Federals, Johnson would believe that if he can send in two brigades to get behind Hurlburt and Prentiss, then the battle would be essentially over, a checkmate. A key blunder was thinking Stewart's lone brigade was another division. Dispatching Jackson and Chalmers, who had already been engaged, instead of pressing the advantage on Prentiss, may have also cost Johnson. James Chalmers and his brigade of mostly Mississippi regiments and John Jackson with his mostly Alabama brigade would be guided around the federal right. Facing them is a lone brigade under David Stewart. Stewart, a former congressman, has a reputation as a scoundrel before the war, but he would receive redemption on April 6th. His brigade consists of the 55th Illinois 71st Ohio, and 54th Ohio. The 54th is one of the only Zouave regiments in the Western Army. When pressured by the Confederates, a large portion of the 71st would break and withdraw. Unfortunately for Stuart, this was the largest of his regiments. At one point, the 54th Ohio is virtually standing alone against Jackson and Chalmers, as the 55th Illinois is also thrown into a virtual confusion. 
Stuart is able to rally enough of his men, though. During the day, he is wounded, but he successfully stops the Confederate advance, at least long enough for the Union Army to have reformed at Pittsburgh Landing. Ammunition is actually exhausted for both sides. And this lack of ammunition, and having to pause and wait for additional ammunition to come, is what's going to save the Union flank as the Confederate attack stalls. From roughly 11 a.m. to around 1 p.m., Stuart had held, this time being crucial. Meanwhile, on the Confederate left flank, Sherman and McClernand are finally forced to retire from their position along the Hamburg-Purdy Road. It was said the line of the rebels extended nearly a mile long. They would be able to reform and counterattack the men under Polk, sending them back before retreating to a new defensive line around Pittsburgh Landing. But where exactly was Lew Wallace? In one of the mysteries of the battle, Wallace takes the wrong road rather than the one that was going to directly take him to the battle. Essentially, he gets lost. It is possible he misunderstands his orders, but it is also possible he was thinking of bringing his division into the rear of the Army of Mississippi and breaking their back, winning the day for the Union. Regardless of what happened, this event would be terrible for Lew Wallace for the rest of the war, no longer trusted by Grant. Johnson would realize the need for breaking the Union on the left center and take personal command of the troops there. The Confederate commander would want to personally lead an assault across a peach orchard to attack the Union men under Hurlburt. In the process, he would be hit in the back of the leg, severing an artery. Unfortunately, Johnson had actually suffered a dueling wound to his leg, so he was unable to feel the shot that hit him in the leg. He was unable to feel also that he was bleeding out with blood filling his boot. His condition would quickly deteriorate. His staff, which included Tennessee Governor Isham Harris, not knowing what to do. Part of the problem was is that they didn't understand what was wrong with him because the blood is filling into his boot rather than there being an open wound. And Johnson obviously was unable to tell them where he was wounded. Ironically, Johnson had sent his surgeon away to tend to his wounded men. A field tourniquet could have saved the Kentucky-turned-Texans' life. Although hidden from the rank and file for the rest of the day, Albert Sidney Johnson was dead. He would be the highest-ranking officer to die in combat during the Civil War. PGT Beauregard, whose headquarters were now at Shiloh Church, would take command of the army. As we mentioned, Bragg had taken command in the Confederate center. Now, despite what we mentioned earlier, it is not without cost to the Union soldiers deployed here. The 9th Illinois would lose over 300 men facing attacks from Thomas Heinemann and Patrick Claiborne. Late in the afternoon, Daniel Ruggles, commanding the troops from New Orleans, 
including the famed Crescent Regiment, would bring forward batteries of artillery to pound the Federals into submission. A combined number of batteries would do the trick, forcing many of the Union troops to withdraw. Hurlburt is finally pushed back from the left center, forcing Prentiss and Wallace to refuse their lines. It is now that the Confederates are able to surround the hornet's nest. Prentiss and 2,200 of the Union defenders surrender, but are satisfied they have done the job in allowing Grant to make a new line around the landing. It is here that William Wallace is wounded and spends a night on the battlefield before being recovered on the 7th. Unfortunately, he will not survive his wounds. So here we have the big controversy from the Confederate side. Beauregard calls off the attack and sends to Richmond that a great victory has been won. There are those who argue a continued assault would have finished off the Union Army. At this point, though, Bull Nelson has arrived from Buell's army, and the divisions under Grant have been reorganized. It is almost certain that Beauregard could have done very little in the darkness to turn the tide of the battle. The situation may have looked bleak, but it did not phase the confident Grant. His back was to the river, his army had taken on heavy casualties, and it started to rain that night. Famously, Sherman would remark to Grant that they had had the Devil's Day. The laconic Grant would reply that they had, but that they would lick them tomorrow. Perhaps maybe another quote from the lore of Louis S. Grant has James McPherson making a similar comment, and Grant responds that he will attack and whip them tomorrow. Grant could justifiably be confident in the reversal of fortune. Wallace had finally arrived in the night. Buell and his fresh army would take the left flank. In all, they were probably pushing some 60,000 men. Beauregard would be lucky if he was able to bring half of that to the field. As his message to the Confederate capital would suggest, though, he was also confident of victory. Nathan Bedford Forrest would try to alert the Confederate command as to the arrival of fresh troops, but this was brushed aside amazingly by Hardy. Forrest had his men actually observe the troops under Bull Nelson reinforcing the Federal line, but for unexplicable reasons, nobody seems to care when he reports, especially not Hardy, he's not passing it on up the line to Beauregard, uh, they call sort of brush off Nathan Bedford Forrest, which obviously Nathan Bedford Forrest does not have a good temper, so he's going to be upset about that for the rest of the war. Despite losing the initiative and not having numerical superiority, Beauregard did oddly enough have some superiority in artillery. Remember the 11 batteries and 53 pieces that were brought against the Hornet's Nest. So rushed had been the Army of the Ohio that they had left behind much of their artillery in order to come to Grant's aid. This is going to be one of the only times during the Civil War where the Confederates are going to have this advantage in artillery, but it's not really going to pan out for them as we're going to see. On April 7th, Wallace would begin the Union assault. 
the Confederates still lacked organization and would be pushed back when pressed across the line. Nelson would lead Buell's army in attack. Men under William Hazen would take heavy casualties in the process. Eventually, the ground lost the previous day was retaken. Once again, the Federal line will be at the Hornet's Nest. Counterattacks by Breckenridge are fended off by McCook's division of Buell. The artillery is able to do some damage against the advancing Yankees, but it would only be delaying the inevitable. Beauregard would soon concede that a retreat was necessary. Confederate soldiers would discard their spoils from the previous day in an effort to get away. Grant would half-heartedly pursue the enemy, there having been enough casualties. 10,600 on the side of the Confederates and 13,000 on the Union side. The 23,000 total casualties were more than the previous American wars combined. The next day there would be a pursuit by some of Sherman's men, and they would meet Nathan Bedford Forrest's rear guard at a place called Fallen Timbers. Now it is unclear why this place was called Fallen Timbers, possibly because of lumber operations, possibly because of a tornado, but Forrest would show his ferocity and aggressiveness against an oncoming group of federal infantry. Now, if you would believe the lore around Nathan Bedford Forrest, apparently he is shot in the spine and then grabs a Union infantryman and throws him on the back of his saddle as a human shield. This most likely, in all probability, is not a real story because as strong as Nathan Bedford Forrest was, he probably was not strong enough to grab a man with his one arm while having been shot in the spine and then throw him on the back of a horse. So Forrest is wounded and he does recover extraordinarily quickly following the Battle of Shiloh, but um, it's probably not true that he used a federal infantryman as a shield. This action is significant because it does give pause to the Union pursuit, and the Confederate Army is allowed to get back to Corinth. After the battle, Grant would again come under criticism. Bull Nelson would mention that there were some 11,000 disorganized troops when he landed, which is undoubtedly an exaggeration. There would be inquiries as to whether Grant had been negligent, allowing for the Confederates to attack, but Sherman, among others, would come to his support. Sherman also had a black mark against him for Shiloh. In fact, after the war, he would often skip over the battle when talking about his service. On the Confederate side, Beauregard would lose his bright star. Never again would Jefferson Davis trust the Louisiana general. Ironically, Shiloh means place of peace. This battle was anything but peaceful. Years afterward, the men who fought would write about how the ferocity of this battle was unequaled. Even veterans who would go on to fight in the other battles of the war would agree that Shiloh was the most desperate of struggles. Images of carnage would be especially engraved into their memoirs. But why? As we have mentioned here, there was a sense of urgency on the part of the Confederates. They needed to strike back at the Union and gain back territory, 
Likewise, it would have an effect on the Federals as well. Grant may have got his resolution for destruction of the Confederates as the only option to win the war, having been faced with their tenacity in southern Tennessee. So now, we can officially bring the Battle of Shiloh to a close. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.